Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? A strange goldfield by Guy Boothby. Of course, nine out of ten of every intelligent persons will refuse to believe that there could be a grain of truth in the story I'm now going to tell you. The tenth may have some small faith in my veracity, but what I think of his intelligence, I'm going to keep to myself. In a certain portion of a certain Australian colony, two miners went out prospecting in what was then, as now, one of the dreariest parts of the island continent, chanced upon a rich find. They applied to government for the usual reward, and in less than a month, 3,000 people were settled on the field. What privations they had to go through to get there, and the miseries they had to endure when they did reach their journey's end, have only a remote bearing on this story, but they would make a big book. I should explain that between Railhead and the field was a stretch of country some 300 miles in extent. It was badly watered, vilely grassed, and execrably timbered. What was even worse, A considerable portion of it was made up of red sand and everybody who has been compelled to travel over that knows what that means. Yet, these enthusiastic seekers after wealth pushed on, some on horseback, some in bullock wagons, but the majority travelled on foot. The graves and the skeletons of cattle belonging to those who had preceded them punctuating the route and telling them what they might expect as they advanced. That the field did not prove a success is now a matter of history. But that same history, if you read between the lines, gives one some notion of what life must have been like while it lasted. The water supply was entirely insufficient. Provisions were bad and ruinously expensive. The men themselves were, as a rule, the roughest of the rough, while the less said about the majority of the women, the better. Then typhoid stepped in and stalked like a destroying angel through the camp. Its inhabitants went down like sheep in a drought, and for the most part, rose no more. Where there had been a lust of gold, and there was now panic, terror, every man feared that he might be the next to be attacked, and it was only the knowledge of those terrible three hundred miles that separated them from civilization that kept many of them on the field. The most thickly populated part was now the cemetery. Drink was the only solace, and under its influence such scenes were enacted as I dare not describe. As they heard of fresh deaths, men shook their fists at heaven and cursed the day when they first saw pick or shovel. Some, bolder than the rest, cleared out just as they stood. A few eventually reached civilization; Others perished in the desert. At last, the field was declared abandoned, and the dead were left to take their last long sleep, undisturbed by the clank of windlass or the blow of pick. It would take too long to tell all the different reasons that combined to draw me out into that most distressful country. Let it suffice that our party consisted of a young Englishman named Spicer, a wily old Australian bushman named Matthews, and myself. We were better off than the unfortunate miners insomuch as we were travelling with camels, and our outfits were as perfect as money and experience could make them. The man who travels in any other fashion in that country is neither more nor less than a madman. For a month past we had been having a fairly rough time of it, and were then on our way south, where we had a reason to believe rain had fallen, and in consequence grass was plentiful. It was towards evening when we came out of a gully in the ranges and had our first view of the deserted camp. We had no idea of its existence, and for this reason we pulled up our animals and stared at it in complete surprise, 
Then we pushed on again, wondering what on earth place we'd chanced upon. This is all right, said Spicer with a chuckle. We're in luck. Grog shanties and stores a bath and perhaps girls. I shook my head. I can't make it out, I said. What's it doing out here? Matthews was looking at it under his hand, and as I knew that he'd been out in this direction on a previous occasion, I asked his opinion. Beats me, he replied, but if you ask me what I think, I should say it's Garunia, the field that was deserted some four or five years back. Look here, cried Spicer, who was riding a bit on our left. What are all these things? Graves, as I'm a living man. Here, let's get out of this. There are hundreds of them, and before I know where I am, old Polyphemus will be here on his nose. What he said was correct. The ground over which we were riding was literally bestrewn with graves, some of which had rough tumble-down headboards, others being destitute of all adornment. We turned away and moved on over safer ground in the direction of the field itself. Such a pitiful sight I'll never want to see again. The tents and huts in numerous cases were still standing, while the claims gaped at us on every side like new-made graves. A bullock dray, weather-worn but still in excellent condition, stood in the main street outside of Grog Shanty, whose signboard, strange incongruity, bore the name of the Killarney Hotel. Nothing would suit Spicer, but then he must dismount and go in and explore. It was not long away when he returned. It was with a face as white as a sheet of paper. You never saw such a place, he almost whispered. All I want to do is get out of it. There's a skeleton on the floor in the back room with an empty rum bottle alongside it. He mounted, and when his beast was on its feet once more, we were on our way. Not one of us was sorry when we left the last claim behind us. Half a mile or so from the field, and the country begins to rise again. There's also a curious cliff away to the left, and as it looked like being a likely place to find water, we resolved to camp there. We were within a hundred yards or so of this cliff when an exclamation from Spicer attracted my attention. Luke, he cries, what's that? I followed the direction in which he was pointing, and to my surprise I saw the figure of a man running as if for his life among the rocks. I have said the figure of a man, but as a matter of fact, had there been baboons in the Australian bush, I should have been inclined to have taken him for one. This is a day of surprises, I said. Who can that fellow be, and what makes him act like that? We still continued to watch him as he proceeded on his erratic course along the base of the cliff. Then he suddenly disappeared. Let's get on to camp, I said, and then we'll go after him and endeavour to settle matters a bit. Having selected a place, we off-saddled and prepared our camp. By this time it was nearly dark, and it was very evident that if we wanted to discover the man we had seen, it would be wise not to postpone the search too long. We accordingly strolled off in the direction he had taken, keeping a sharp lookout for any sign of him. Our search, however, was not successful. The fellow had disappeared without leaving a trace of his whereabouts behind him, and yet we were all certain that we had seen him. At length we returned to our camp for supper, completely mystified. As we ate our meal, we discussed the problem and vowed that on the morrow we would renew the search. Then the full moon rose over the cliff and the plain immediately became well nigh as bright as day. I had lit my pipe and was stretching myself out upon my blankets when something induced me to look across at a big rock, some half-dozen paces from the fire. Peering around it and evidently taking an absorbing interest in our doings was the most extraordinary figure I've ever beheld. Shouting something to my companions, I sprang to my feet and dashed across at him. He saw me and fled. Old as he apparently was, he could run like a jackrabbit. 
and though I have the reputation of being fairly quick on my feet, I found that I had all my work cut out to catch him. Indeed, I am rather doubtful as to whether I should have done so at all had he not tripped and measured his length on the ground. Before he could get up, I was on him. I've got you last, my friend, I said. Now, you just come along back to the camp and let's have a look at you. In reply, he snarled like a dog, and I believe he would have bitten me had I not held him off. My word, he was a creature more animal than man, and the reek of him was worse than any of our camels. From what I could tell, he must be about sixty years of age, well below the middle height, had white eyebrows, white hair and a white beard. He was dressed partly in rags and partly in skins, and went barefooted like an aborigine. While I was overhauling him, the others came up, whereupon we escorted him back to the camp. What wouldn't Barnum give for him, said Spicer. You're a beauty, my friend, and no mistake. What's your name? The fellow only grunted in reply. Then, seeing the pipes in our mouths, a curious change came over him, and he muttered something that resembled, Gimme. Wants a smoke, interrupted Matthews. Poor beggar's been without for a long time, I reckon. Well, I've got an old pipe so he can have a draw. He procured one from his pack saddle, filled it up and handed it to the man who snatched it greedily and began to puff away at it. How long have you been out here? I asked, when he had squatted himself down alongside the fire. Don't know, he answered, this time plainly enough. Can't you get back? continued Matthews, who knew the nature of the country on the other side. Don't want to, was the other's laconic reply. Stay here. I heard Spicer mutter, mad, mutters a march hare. We then tried to get out of him where he hailed from, but he had either forgotten or did not understand. Next we inquired how he managed to live. To this he answered readily enough, carnies. Now, the carny is a lizard of the iguana type, and eaten raw would be by no means an appetising dish. Then came the question that gives me reason for telling the story. It was Spicer who put it. You must have had a lonely time of it out here, said the latter. How do you manage for company? There's a field, he said. It's sociable a field as any you'd find. But the field's deserted, man, I put in, and has been for years. The old fellow shook his head. As sociable a field as ever you saw, he repeated. There's Sailor Dick and Frisco, Dick Johnson, Cockney Jim, and half a hundred of them. They're taking it out powerful rich in the Golden South, so I heard when I was down at the Killarney a while back. It was plain to us that the old man was, as Spicer had said, as mad as a hatter. For some minutes he rambled on about the field, talking rationally enough, I must confess. That is to say, it would have seemed rationally enough if we hadn't known the true facts of the case. At last he got on his feet, saying, Well, I must be going. They'll be expecting me. It's my shift on with Cockney Jim. But you don't work at night, growled Matthews from the other side of the fire. We work always, the other replied. If you don't believe me, come and see for yourselves. I wouldn't go back to that place for anything, said Spicer. But I must confess that my curiosity had been aroused, and I determined to go, if only to see what this strange creature did when he got there. Matthews decided to accompany me, and not wishing to be left alone, Spicer at length agreed to do the same. Without looking round, the old fellow led the way across the plain towards the field. Of all the nocturnal excursions I have made in my life, that was certainly the most uncanny. Not once did our guide turn his head, but pushed on at a pace that gave us some trouble to keep up with him. It was only when we came to the first claim that he paused. Listen, he said, and you can hear the camp at work. Then you'll believe me. We did listen, and as I live we could distinctly hear the rattling of sluice boxes and cradles, the groaning of the windlasses, in fact the noise you hear on a goldfield at the busiest hour of the day. We moved a little closer and, believe me or not, 
I swear to you, I could see, or thought I could see, the shadowy forms of men moving about in that ghostly moonlight. Meanwhile, the wind sighed across the plain, flapping what remained of the old tents and giving an additional touch of horror to the general desolation. I could hear Spicer's teeth chattering beside me, and for my own part, I felt as if my blood were turning to ice. That's the claim, the Golden South, away to the right there, said the old man. And if you'll come along with me, I'll introduce you to my mates. But this was an honour we declined, and without hesitation. I wouldn't have gone any further among those tents for all the wealth of the Indies. I've had enough of this, said Spicer, and I can tell you I barely recognised his voice. Let's get back to camp. By this time, our guide had left us and was making his way in the direction he had indicated. We could plainly hear him addressing imaginary people as he marched along. As for ourselves, we turned about and hurried back to our camp as fast as we could go. Once there, the grog bottle was produced, and never did three men stand more in need of stimulants. Then we set to work to find some explanation of what we had seen, or had fancied we saw. But it was impossible. The wind might have rattled the old windlasses, but it could not be held accountable for those shadowy grey forms that had moved about among the claims. I give it up, said Spicer at last. I know that I never want to see it again. What's more, I vote that we clear out of here tomorrow morning. We all agreed, and then retired to our blankets, but for my part, I do not mind confessing. I scarcely slept a wink all night. The thought that that hideous old man might be hanging about the camp would alone be sufficient for that. Next morning, as soon as it was light, we breakfasted, but before we broke camp, Matthews and I set off along the cliff and attempted to discover our acquaintance of the previous evening. Though, however, we searched high and low for upwards of an hour, no success rewarded us. By mutual consent, we resolved not to look for him on the field. When we returned to Spicer, we placed such tobacco and stores as we could spare under the shadow of the big rock, where the mystery would be likely to see them, then mounted our camels and resumed our journey, heartily glad to be on our way once more. Garunya Goldfield is a place I never desire to visit again. I don't like its population. Guy Boothby was born in Adelaide, Australia in 1867 and died in Bournemouth, England in 1905, aged only 38. He died of flu. At the time of his birth, South Australia was a recently established British colony and his father's family were important administrators and legislators of the colony. Boothby's mother was English and she separated from his father when he was only seven and took him back to England where he was educated at a private school in Salisbury. Boothby wanted to return to Australia and he went back aged 16 and entered the colonial administration in Adelaide where he was secretary to the mayor of Adelaide, but he didn't like the work. While he was doing that, he began to write, write lyrics for light operas and he was only 23 at the time and he acted in them as well. Um, all things went okay in that kind of light opera acting and writing way and then in 1890 there was a big economic collapse in Australia and he tried to get back to England. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have enough money, so he disembarked in uh, Colombo, which was Ceylon in those days, another British colony, now Sri Lanka, of course, and he made his way back to Australia, overland and working on ships. Uh, he w- worked on the sailing ship. He was a, a stoker in a steamship. He worked in an opium den in Singapore. 
He worked in a ruby mine. He was a cowherd for a while. He was even a prize fighter, an actor. He did a lot of other things. And his final thing before actually going back to Adelaide was to be a pearl diver in Queensland, in North Australia. Eventually, he went back to Australia, worked there for a bit, and eventually went back to England. So he was back and forward between the two places, his mother's uh, country. And he wrote a, a pretty successful travel memoir of his fairly spectacular adventures across the world. And he settled back in England and wrote a lot of stories, novels, writing six novels a year at one point. Very prolific until he died. And he was quite successful in his time. And it strikes me that A Strange Goldfield is a short story. I wanted to include an Australian story, um, as I said, because we've been around the world a bit. Also, I wanted the opportunity to practice my Australian accent. So I hope it wasn't too jarring for those, for anybody really, but particularly the uh, Antipodeans amongst us who have some expertise in spotting a real accent from a fake one. I've worked with Australians, you know, and New Zealanders, so maybe I picked something up there. It strikes me that this is technically a ghost story, and, you know, I'm obsessed with the moral content of ghost stories, and I would say that it's almost a biblical thing here. We have these people who are the roughest of the rough, and the women are even rougher than the men, and they go to this place, and they put up with terrible deprivations and hardships in the name of greed and as a punishment almost for their greed, and it's uh, described as a destroying angel, typhoid comes. And even worse than that, after death they are not released from their punishment and are forced to work the goldfield. Other than that, it seemed that this was a Victorian adventure story, because of course in in these times the the stay-at-home public had an enormous appetite for stories of adventure, of explorers, and so we have, the, you know, Livingston and people in Africa, we had Scott of the Antarctic, and similarly, we have in America, we have Jack London and those stories there of, of going up to the gold rush in, on, on the west coast of the States and in Canada. So, it's, it strikes me it's one of those things, and, and particularly I was thinking of She by Ryder Haggard, where people, these brave European explorers, European in origin anyway, they penetrate these remote and distant and hard to get to places and they find all sorts of riches and secrets because that is the reward for facing the unknown. The unknown provides chaos and reward. So again, I think the real virtue of the story was the picture it gives of Gold Rush Australia, which is different from Gold Rush America in that, certainly in this bit, I guess in California, the deserts as well, but in North California, not so much, but uh, certainly not in Canada. But this is the Australian terrain, you know, and uh, I think that makes it worthwhile putting in. I would love to do more Australian stuff. I'm particularly interested in some of the um, more weird stuff coming out, but it's probably all in copyright still. So the other thing to say, of course, is I'm doing this on the 18th of March. We were supposed to be going to York for my birthday tomorrow, but because of the coronavirus, I find that's all been cancelled and we've got time on our hands. We've cancelled all our live storytelling events. Um, I'm still going to work. I work in a doctor's surgery and our doors are locked, so patients don't come in and we're doing all the consultations over the phone. I have no idea. I've never accounted a time like this in my life. I remember when I was young, we had the uh, 
power crisis, the oil crisis in the 70s. And I was very young then, though, very, very young. And uh, then we had the foot and mouth epidemic in 2001, which was a very strange time up here. We, but that was particularly for the farming community, whereas this is everybody. So I don't know. I, I cannot say what will happen. I have no idea. People have all sorts of views about what might happen, and we don't know. But this is being recorded in advance, and it's almost going to be a month in advance. So by the time this goes out and is available to listen to, we will know. We will have a much better idea what's going on, for better or for worse, and I cannot predict that. All I can say is that I just hope that people stay safe. And if you do get it, I, hope, I wish you a speedy recovery. I hope you don't get it. And I believe our societies are strong enough. If we think of the things that other people across the world have gone through, then uh, this, we can go through this with a bit of love and kindness and support. And my part in this, not in my day job, but in this job, is to really entertain you. And that's all I can do. And I'm happy to do that, and I enjoy doing that. So let's crack on doing that. And this, that seems, uh, now, it seems quite awkward to segue into my other things so you know you can support the show. We're growing, still growing, 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 growing incredibly. We're growing 50% week on week at one point. But yeah, I get it that the podcasts are free. I listen to podcasts. I don't pay anybody for them. So you, there you go. What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander too. But if you could uh, maybe buy me a coffee, that would be lovely. Help it. And really, it's to pay the podcasting costs. And I've got a book out. And then my Dark Worlds books are out. So if you want to look at those, I've even converted the first one into a sister podcast. So if you want to listen to that, and that's free, of course, but then you might be so moved to go and buy the book. Okay, that's about it. You all, and I really sincerely mean this now, all of you take care. Okay, thank you. <laughs>